I'm Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, and I'm privileged to be the host of Coffee with Dr. Chopra. This is segment number four, and I'm delighted to welcome to the podium, to the internet podium, Dr. Melanie Hodeg. She's a nephrologist and clinician educator at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. But to me, when I think of Melanie, I think of this beloved teacher. She's beloved by the students at Harvard Medical School, by the students rotating through the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, the interns, the residents, the fellows. Uh, she's such an enthusiastic and uh, brilliant nephrologist. So today we're gonna have some reflections on her field, the discipline of nephrology. I've always regarded my nephrology colleagues as the brightest of all the subspecialists, uh, and they truly are, to understand electrolyte disorders and acid-based disorders and explain them so coherently to us uh, is a real talent and a gift. So, Melanie, welcome. Thank you, Sanjeev. It's so nice to be here with you and share some coffee. You know, when you started introducing me and you said you always think of me, I thought you were going to say as your intern because we've known each other a long time. And I'm chuckling when you talk about being brilliant and knowing electrolytes because I do love electrolytes, but I'm also one of the sort of few nephrologists who's kind of bad at math. So, um, <laughs> so I have to, you know, write down the numbers and make sure the units cross out, et cetera. And I think that's one of the things people are intimidated about nephrology with respect to math, and it, it is possible to do it. Yeah, terrific. So I thought the first question I, I'd pose to you was, and this is in line with some of the work you've done, is uh, reconsidering the role of race in estimating GFR. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Sanjeev. I think especially in this time when, um, uh, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic kind of collided with uh, acute recognition of disparities in this country, it's really important to look at our practices and see what we do and whether we are uh, in essence, perpetuating systemic racism. And I think one example of that is to look at the use of race in clinical calculators. And the most uh, sort of ubiquitous of these is the use of race in the estimated GFR, um, which I, you know, is basically everywhere. And so I think it's worth um, thinking back at how we got there. Um, it, you know, it's worth knowing that we would we would really like to be able to estimate kidney function. It's important so that we can understand what therapeutics to use, how to dose medication that's renally cleared, uh, perhaps uh, access to care. And so understanding and having a simple way to estimate kidney function has long been, if you will, the sort of holy grail of nephrology, that we wanted to be able to ascertain kidney function without doing complicated studies. And, and back in the 70s, we got the Cockroft-Galt formula, which was uh, a formula generated from a, a roughly, I think, 240 men who had given 24-hour urines. And, uh, and a formula was generated with the fact that they were, you know, men and their weight and age. 
And in that formula, they estimated, well, women are probably about sort of have maybe 15% lower muscle mass. So let's add that correction formula for women, point, you know, 0.85 for women. So that was the, you know, the typical formula used. And, but the problem is what weight do you use? We don't always have the weight readily available. And so in the 90s, a study that was done, the Modified Diet and Renal Disease Study, it was a negative trial looking at changes in diet to, on progression, but they happened to have a large number of patients who had measured uh, renal function, measured glomerular filtration rate, and they also had the serum creatinine, and they generated a formula from that. And when they generated that formula, they noticed that the fit for the formula was better if they included a correction factor for race. In that study, they had about uh, 100 uh, black men and 100 black women, roughly. And so the fit for the formula was better with that correction factor. What does that mean? That means that um, for any given creatinine, the kidney function would be better if the patient was black. And that might be true on average, but it doesn't mean that every person in the study who was black had better kidney function at a specific creatinine. Um, and this study was, you know, widely embraced because of assumptions about muscle mass and black race. And then the same authors went on to uh, have another study um, uh, that was published in, uh, I think, 2009. And in this, they um, had a uh, a very large number of studies that had measured GFR, and they were able to uh, recreate a formula. This too found that um, there was they needed a small um, race correction factor, if you will, for black race. They didn't have enough people who were Hispanic or Asian or other. And in the second uh, formula, the CKD Epi formula, they had. Um, Patients generally from other studies had self-identified as black, whereas in the MDRD study, I think the the um, probably the um, uh, personnel who were working on the study identified people as black, and and so that was a sort of the typical um, experience, and we all embraced uh, these formulas, and similarly the national uh, kidney. Um, education program embraced these formulas and encouraged laboratories across the nation to include race. And uh, I, I, you know, I understand that uh, the correction factor helped the fit of the formulas better. But the problem is, I don't know how to use this formula in uh, in clinical practice. And this became I became acutely aware of this while I was teaching with medical students. Some students had asked me, "Well, why would you have a correction factor for a, a better kidney function in the group at greatest risk of renal disease?" And I said, "You know, you're right." And we looked back at the story that I just told told you, Sanjeev, and we felt like maybe even if it's true, even if there is a signal there, we don't really know how to 
to use it in clinical practice. And for this reason, we started to have a lot of conversations with individuals at Beth Israel Medical Center. And, and we're very lucky at the BI, we have our own sort of homegrown computer system that will allow us, uh, is really designed to serve us. And so in conversations with the chief of medicine and the clinical laboratory and the division of nephrology, we decided that having a race uh, correction factor no longer served us. And so we actually dropped that race factor in 2017. Um, and now, you know, with, as I mentioned earlier, with the collision of, uh, you know, the forces in 2020, and also a, a very uh, interesting article that was published in the New England Journal uh, by one of my students, um, uh, looking at the use of race in clinical calculators in medicine, a lot of people are rethinking the use of race. And I think that's a good thing because when a patient comes to my office, um, how do I have these discussions with them about race when I really want to talk to them about their kidney function? And so instead, I think we should talk about muscle mass, nutrition, and, um, and think about what their kidney function may be and what we can do to improve that. The um, American, this is probably more than you wanted, <laughs> but it's a subject that's, that's very important to me. Um, and, and a lot of people are looking at this. The American Society of Nephrology and the National Kidney Foundation have a task force right now um, that has uh, gathered to try and think about how we use race in clinic. And, uh, and I, we expect at least a preliminary report from them at the end of the year. But this, I think, will require ongoing discussions. And think about how we talk about race in clinic, how we talk about it with each other. I think it's very important. Terrific. Thank you so much. So, in effect, were African Americans being poorly served using the formula? Were we delaying the dialysis? We were, were they having to wait longer to get a kidney transplant? You know, here's how this, I think, works, is it, and it has effects in, in either direction. If you're using the estimated glomerular filtration rate, the EGFR, to decide when a patient would be seen by a nephrologist, um, then yes, there's a potential for delay. Uh, the, uh, the folks who generated the formula said the opposite could be a problem too, because if you delete the race correction factor, you might suggest a patient has worse kidney function, and that might uh, um, prevent these patients from using important medications, let's say an estimated GFR under 30. Um, now, let, let's say somebody at the, at the cut, at, at, you know, at the edge, if your estimated GFR is, GFR is under 30, maybe you wouldn't be able to have metformin or an SGLD2 inhibitor if we don't have that correction factor for the better GFR. And I understand that concern, but I still say that I don't know how to use this formula in my clinic. Let's say, um, I think the dramatic example would be if uh, President Obama um, unfortunately had uh, kidney disease and came to my clinic, which value would he get? Would he get the value for a black man and uh, maybe better kidney function and I reassure him and say, uh, I'll see you next year? Or does he get uh, the, the lower value and I say, let's follow you closely, let's make sure your blood pressure is very tightly controlled, let's make sure that your proteinuria is limited. And so that's an issue. In terms of um, uh, 
whether someone would get a kidney transplant. If the estimated GFR is a little bit lower, they, patients might get referred earlier. And I think that's really important. Uh, there are extreme disparities in, uh, in the transplant world for individuals of African ancestry. So anything we can do to try and remove those disparities, I think would be of use. And all this is for adults, right? Not for the pediatric population. That's right. In pediatrics, we don't use race at all. Believe it or not, we use the serum creatinine, the sex, and the height. So this only becomes an issue at your 18th birthday, which I think is a little bit silly. And also, I think it's really important to remember that E for EGFR is an estimate. And in the CKD Epi formula, which is better than the MDRD formula, which is better than the Cockroft Gall formula, guess what? The estimated GFR in that study, 90% of patients were within 30% of their measured GFR. Mm. Okay, so did you think it was better? Did you think it was better than that? People think estimated GFR is like a real number, but it's not, it's an estimate. So if it's an estimate, we should use some nuance. We should think about the creatinine, the patient's muscle mass, nutritional status, and go from there. I have a, a lovely back patient in my office. Uh, he is from Western Africa, and he happens to be an amputee. And he has quite reduced kidney function. But folks keep looking at him and saying, well, your estimated GFR is better because um, you're black. And that's not necessarily true because he doesn't have as much muscle mass because he's missing a leg. Yeah. So we need to reintroduce uh, nuance, I think, and yeah. clinical acumen when we think about kidney function. Terrific. Let's move on. Um, briefly discuss HIV nephropathy. Many, many years ago, before we had uh, you know, very efficient, uh, wonderful antiretrovirals, we would have wards full of patients with GI, with liver, with kidney-related issues secondary to the HIV. This is an area in nephrology that you've been very interested in. Just some reflections. You know, think back of the patients you saw with HIV nephropathy, and now do you see any? No, so I'm so glad you brought that up. I have long been passionate about care of patients with HIV and kidney disease, and um, my role is shrinking. First of all, eight um, HIV-associated nephropathy in, um, is essentially gone for patients who can get antiretroviral therapy. We just, we really never see it anymore. And if we do see it, we can really nip it in the bud with good therapy. So that's been a very exciting story. On top of that, the medications that we used early in the HIV epidemic, uh, many of these were nephrotoxic. The protease inhibitors often caused interstitial nephritis and stone disease. So we have had also wards of patients who were there for kidney stones and uh, acute kidney injury from these agents. And then uh, the older formulation of tenofovir um, uh, caused some, not very high incidence, but to me it felt high, uh, a proximal tubulopathy, the Fanconi syndrome, which we are seeing less and less now that we have access to the newer formulation of tenofovir. So it's been a very exciting sort of 
uh, viewpoint to see this change so much. So now patients care uh, for individuals who have HIV is just sort of regular care, which I love to do. And it's okay to be a little bit boring. Uh, you never really want to be exciting. Good, good. You know, I was uh, reflecting on hepatitis C and kidney disease, and we would see patients with hepatitis C and cryoglobulinemia, and they had MPGN or sometimes membranous nephropathy. And when we first started treating hepatitis C, it was interferon monotherapy for six months, and it had a 6% cure rate, at best 8% in some series. Six to eight out of 100 people with toxic therapy. Then we started using 48 weeks of interferon, then we got peg interferon, then we got peg interferon and ribavirin. And now, of course, we have directly acting antiviral agents. And the cure, even in patients with cirrhosis and patients with co-infection with HIV, is 95% with pills for eight weeks, for 12 weeks. And as you know, and I, I just want to make sure that the people listening appreciate that Michael Houghton, a PhD, who cracked the HCV story together with Harvey Alter, one other person this year, a couple of weeks ago, received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. So uh, a landmark thing, you know, blood transfusions in the 60s had a one in three chance, one in three in our country of post-transfusion hepatitis. 1972, the radioaminoassay for hepatitis B surface antigen became available. So every unit of donor blood was tested, screened, and excluded if it was positive for hepatitis B. Then we started looking at surrogate markers for non and non-B. And then since 1991 or so, we've tested every unit of blood for hepatitis C. And a few years ago from Olmsted uh, County, weeks ago, received the Nobel Prize in physiology.